Today's reading is Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 30. And behold, a man came to Jesus saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, my name is Jesse Cromer. I'm one of the pastors on staff. It's my pleasure to welcome you this morning. And uh, you got two strips of paper in, in the bulletin this morning. If you didn't get them, some of you are like, I know what we're going to do, I think, but I don't really think he would do that. Oh, well, we are. Um, if you don't have Tim and a couple people are walking around, so if you need some, everyone's got to have. We've got to participate, full participation this morning. And uh, secondly, uh, we're going to be in Matthew 19, as you heard this morning, so if you want to turn there, you can. So make sure you have your red card and your green card. Here's a question for you, though, as, as you're getting that and as you're turning in, in, the, in your, your Bibles. Have you ever been in a moment of real financial need and had somebody meet that need for you? Somebody comes along and gives you a gift despite the fact that, or, you know, because of the fact that you are 
in a very difficult time, or maybe not even knowing that you're in a difficult time, but they just came to you and said, I felt like the Lord is putting this on my heart to give to you. I felt like this is supposed to go to you. Have you ever experienced that kind of scenario? Have you ever been the recipient of a truly generous gift that came at just the right time? No no expectation to pay them back, just a gift, and you were the recipient. Anybody ever been the, experienced that? I know I have. Yeah, most of us have. Brendan Manning tells a story in a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And he tells a story about, Brendan Manning was a phenomenal, uh, well-known uh, Christian speaker and author. Wrote a, really, uh, a couple really um, formative books, especially in my life and the life of many people. And he tells a story in this about being at a retreat. He's speaking at a retreat, and a man walks up, and he hands him an envelope. And in that envelope, he would later discover later that night that there was a $6,000 check. And the guy had walk, walked up to Brennan and said, God told me to get us to here you go. And, and that would be pretty cool in and of itself. But Brennan had spent uh, several days just, just previous, had spent several days living in Juarez, Mexico, in a literal city garbage dump with people who lived in the dump and every day would go to the dump or would go out into the, the, the mounds of trash and scavenge for food. And every week kids were dying because of malnutrition and obviously pollution and all kinds of horrible living situations. And so Brennan, realizing I need to, get, sends the check, sends the money to a father of 10 children who'd already lost three kids because of the situation. What was the man's response? The man wrote him nine letters in two days explaining how this gift was transforming his life, how he was using it to bless others around, how he was meeting the needs of his friends and family thanks to this generosity that Brennan Manning had showed them. Nine letters in two days. That story, I read that 15 years ago, and besides the overall theme of the book, which was pretty impactful in my life, That's the one story I've never forgotten. And when I experience or I see stories of real generosity, I've often thought of that story that Brendan tells. Stories like this, stories where people's radical generosity transforms lives, are some of the most impactful stories to me. I don't, look, I hate romance. I hate romantic movies. I think they're all lies. You can feel bad for my wife later if you want. I don't actually hate romance, but I hate romantic novels and that junk, right? Sorry, some of you. But you tell me a story about somebody sacrificing something for others, somebody giving generously to meet a need, and I will tear up. Those are the stories that move me. Those are the stories that compel me in my own life. And I don't, I don't think I'm alone. I bet probably most of you, you may not hate romantic novels, but most of you really, when you hear a story of generosity, of real gifts, most of you are probably very moved. After all, I've never heard anybody other than a couple jerks say, I don't want to be a generous person. Most everybody will say, I, I desire to be a generous person. We've been in this sermon series called A Life That Blesses Others, and today I really want to focus on a life of generosity that blesses others. And a few caveats. Now, I recognize that generosity comes in all kinds of forms. It comes in time and love and energy and and all kinds of things. But before we go there, I just want to say that today we're going to focus on money and possessions. 
And while those other things are all good, I feel like many times in the last, I'll say whatever, X years that I've been in the church, when we talk about generosity, we quickly go to those other things, and it almost feels like we go to those other things so that we don't talk about the challenge of being generous with our stuff, with our finances and our money. And so today I really just want to focus on our finances, on our money, on the things that we own. And maybe you're like, oh man, you know, this is my first time back in a church, my first time in church, and of course we're talking about money. Here's the preacher going. We never, A, we never preach about money around here, so sorry. And B, I'm not going to talk about you giving more money to me. Let's talk about following Jesus with our finances this morning. That's what we want to talk about. We want to talk about being faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And if we don't include our money, then we're really not talking like the whole conversation here. And on top of that, let me just throw this out too. I'm not coming at this from a perspective of here's what you don't do or here's what you need to do. This morning I want it to be about here's what I think you want in your life. Here's what I bet you're desiring to do. And I bet a lot of you in this room are trying very hard to be generous people. You desire that in your own life. So that's a good place to start our activity this morning. Okay, so we have, you have a, a green card and a red card. And what we're going to practice is this ancient art that was handed down to me by youth pastors from years ago. And it's a legendary activity called red card, green card. All right? So this has been an ancient tradition of youth pastors. And when I was a youth pastor, we would use this to, to, especially with high school students, we would use it to take high school students and discuss sex. And since most grown adults are as uncomfortable talking about money as teenagers are talking about sex, I thought this would be perfectly appropriate, all right? So a little risky this morning. I don't know, maybe this is the stupidest thing, but hey, lose on vacation, okay? So we can do whatever. Beth wanted to cancel service. Uh, Daniel wanted to go play dodgeball. Alex just wanted to put the Liverpool game on the screen. I'm like, no, we're going to do something. We'll make it a little different, but we're going to have church this morning, okay? Okay, so it's really simple. It's not that complicated. I'm going to read some statements, and if you agree with a statement, you hold up a green card. If you don't agree with a statement, you hold up a red card, okay? And I'm not going to force you. We're all big kids here. I'm not going to force you to participate, but this is a nice way of being able to to reflect and participate without having to stand up or, okay, those of you who, who you know, give a million dollars a year, you go stand over there, and those of you who don't, go stand over here, okay? Just really simple, all right? All right, so here's an easy one to start with. We always start with an easy one. I want to be a generous person. Okay, good. There's only one or two jerks in the room. I see one jerk in the back. Okay. When I hear of someone in need, I usually have a desire to help. That doesn't mean I meet that desire, but I usually feel something inside. I want to help that person, right? Okay. I don't know what to do with a guy on the street that hits me up for a couple bucks. Okay. I believe that God wants to help me become more generous. Okay, think about this one for a minute. Other people, besides just my very close friends, other people would describe me as a generous person. Put whatever you want up, right? I really don't, I'm I'm not seeing, I saw one red earlier, but I'm not looking at people's answers, okay? 
Practicing generosity is essential to following Jesus. Practicing substantial generosity is as important as Bible reading and prayer. Think about that one for a moment. I regularly feel content with what I have. I figured I'd see a lot more reds up there. I've got to be honest. I have an intentional practice of giving away money. I do not, I do not equate generosity with tithing. I do not, this is a negative, I do not equate generosity with tithing. So if you do equate generosity with tithing, put up a red card, okay? If you don't, put up a green card. Okay. I think there's a lot of people that would probably connect with that statement. I set aside 10% of my income to give away. Here's a challenge you want. I give away more than 10% of my income, tax, tax deduction or not. I have some friends, thank you. I have some friends, and they make, they do extremely well. They live in a, in a, in a, in a nice house, but it's, it's subtle. And I'm having lunch with, that, with one of them the other day, uh, the wife, and I was asking her some questions because they are generous. And she said, and, and they make, I don't know, but it's in the millions, right? She said, we live off 20% of our income. And I, was, I just, in that moment, I said, you know, if I was them, I'd be proud. So they give away 80%. I'd be proud of myself if I lived off 80 and gave away 20 if I was them. And yet they live, they intentionally have a practice of living off 20% of their income. And they put people's kids through college, and they're financing an African pastor's seminary, and they're bringing his wife over to live here because they've been apart too long. Just real generosity. It was pretty powerful. All right, when I give, I feel substantial joy. Only one or two more. When I give, I feel serious joy. In the last couple of years, I've given away a substantial gift. Let's just say over $500 to someone. No expectation, just met a need. Here you go. Let me just give it to you. I'm, this is my last one. I'm scared, I'm legitimately scared that if I'm open to Jesus in this area, he could ask too much of me. I'm going to put a green card up for that one myself. I seriously, thank you everybody for participating this morning. I seriously have a hesitancy as I seek to be a generous person that what if I'm, what if God asks for me to do more than I can, I can do? I mean, after all, when we listen to the story we heard read this morning, I mean, it's sort of fair to ask that question, isn't it? A guy comes to Jesus and he's, he says he's a rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus in Matthew 19 and he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? If you haven't turned your Bibles, go ahead and do that now. And Jesus says to him, you know the commandments, follow them. And the guy says, well, which ones? So Jesus lists them. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not, shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy says, I followed them all. 
which should be an alarming response to us as the reader. Really? Wow. Okay. So Jesus says, well, you still lack something. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. That's a pretty major challenge that Jesus throws at the young man. And I think it's really interesting. In verse 22 it says, When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It doesn't say that the young man went away because he had so little, now he was going to have to do without. It says he went away sorrowful because he had a lot. And Jesus doesn't ease off the intensity of the moment. He turns to his disciples and he makes some story about a camel and a needle. We're not going to get into that this morning because there's different opinions on it. But he says basically this thing of like, it is very difficult for those with great wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And they were astonished. Well, then who can be saved? I mean, it tells you something about the attitude of having wealth in that day and age. Who then can be saved? If you've spent a lot of time in the church, you've heard this passage talked about many times. And I've heard so many different angles on it because I don't think people know what to do with Jesus' words. I don't think that we, especially as Western Christians, really know what to do with what Jesus says. But I think there's a a key in the commands that he says to the young man. Look at that last one. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. And you're tracking along with a lot of those. You're like, okay, those sound familiar from Exodus. Those sound like we're talking the Ten Commandments. And all of a sudden it gets into love your neighbor as yourself. And if you know your Bible well, you go, well, that's not found in Exodus. That's actually found in Leviticus 19. And Jesus, in his ministry and throughout, throughout the Gospels, Spends a lot of time talking about this, this, this loving your neighbor as yourself. It comes up many times. So in Mark 12, 28, 31, Jesus is asked, he says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and, your, and all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And this theme is picked up again both by, by, uh, by James and by Paul. In, in Galatians 4 or 5.14 it says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And James 2 repeats it. If you, are really, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And like I said, this comes from Leviticus 19, and I'm going to read some of it for you. It's a little small, I apologize, but I'll, I'm going to read it for you. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, this is, this is in Leviticus, at, towards the end, as they're about to enter into the promised land, and they're sort of recapping, there's the law, it says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh, your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf 
or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am Yahweh. And it continues. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor, I am Yahweh. And it says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. And I don't know, I heard that and I thought of Cain and Abel again. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. You know, and I mentioned Cain and Abel early on in the history of God's people, all the way back to Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel. There has been strife and hatred between brothers. And the question was raised back in Genesis 4, am I my brother's keeper? And if you remember the story, God asked Cain, where is your brother, after he murdered him. And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And that question is meant to be answered with a resounding yes. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. We are our brothers and sisters' keepers. We are meant to look at each other and to realize that we are ultimately the same family. We are all sons and daughters made in the image of our creator, Yahweh. And we all have the temptation of Cain, not to literally murder the person next to you. I don't know if you look at the person next to you. Just Hopefully that person doesn't have the temptation to murder you right now. But to forsake our responsibility to be that person's keeper. We look at people and, and we often decide how desirable they are to us. When I see someone in need, I look at them and I decide, how desirable is that person to me? Do I want to meet their need? But God's word teaches us that neighbors are neighbors regardless of their desirability. Let me say that again. God's word teaches us that neighbors are neighbors regardless of their desirability. My responsibility to each neighbor is the same. And we really shouldn't be surprised that centuries later, when we get to this story with Jesus, that God's people have sort of twisted the definition of neighbor to conform to however they sort of want it to work, so that when the question comes up, have you loved your neighbor as yourself, they can say, well, yeah, I've done that. I mean, Jesus actually not only talks about this love your neighbor as yourself a lot, but he also radically challenges the idea of what, how we define neighbor. I mean, he says to them, you've heard it said that to love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say to you that you should love your neighbor and, and your enemy. And the Good Samaritan story is one in which they get into this argument and Jesus says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy says, well, then who's my neighbor? And what's the story he tells of a man who goes across cultural, across religious, across enemy lines to help a person in need and to generously give to that person, even though they are of a culture that is in conflict with his own. That he would give generously and be that person's keeper, to take them to a place, to offer money for their, for their medical bills, and to say, look after them, I'll be back in the morning to make sure that they are okay. That is Jesus' definition of a neighbor. And it goes all the way back. I remember, and some of you are like, didn't he preach on this last time? I did. I preached on something similar because this idea of people keeping has become so profound in my understanding of reading scripture. 
that I see it pop up in so many of Jesus' teachings. All the way back in Genesis 4, people are in conflict with each other and God calls them to be each other's keepers. We are meant to be people's keepers. As followers of Yahweh, as followers of Jesus, our responsibility is to be people's keepers. And so when this rich young ruler who has a lot, and he he was in a culture in which tons of people had very little, Jesus could look at him and say, no, 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 hold on. I'm not throwing out some weird hurdle just because I want to see if you'll jump over it. I'm actually challenging your view of whether or not you fulfilled this. You walk around with people in need every day. And you don't see it as your responsibility to take care of them. So we shouldn't be surprised that they have redefined neighbor. Because 2,000 years after Jesus, we basically do the same thing, don't we? I've often heard people talk about generosity being possible when we love other people. But we need to take that word. One of the things I love about my time under Lou's leadership has been that he doesn't let, us, doesn't let me or any of us on staff get away with using cheap words. What I mean by that? Like if you use a word that just, that it's almost like the word smurf. You remember how when, when they would use the word smurf, it was interchangeable? Anybody re- recognize that? Okay. I got like six people who, thank you. But if you say, oh, I just, I just, I just, thank you. I felt, it's more, no. Um, you say something like, oh, I just, I just want to bless that person. And we, go, well, we use that word cheaply. What do you mean by that? Let's, let's not throw Christianese around and just to say, and if I use the right words, oh, yeah, 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 we all understand what I mean by that. No, no, no. Like, let's actually not just kind of stop the, the conversation short by throwing out some language that's just sort of cheap. And I think we do that with love. What do we mean by love? And more importantly, what does the Bible, what does God mean by loving others? Because it's easy to say, well, generosity is possible when I love them, but it's also easy to say, well, I love them in the way I want to love them or define love. And one of the things that's really important as we talk about just this topic is to say, wait, we need to be in obedience to God. One of the interesting things is... um, I was reading, and somebody who I'm going to quote later, but he talks about that in order to really follow the law, that we have to submit ourselves to God's leadership and God's direction in our lives. That as we think about love, that we can't define love the way we want to, we have to look and say, God, you've given me this idea of what it looks like to love others. And I have to be willing to allow you to define it. Because if I sit and I decide for myself what this looks like, I'll always sort of come up with a twisted definition. And according to scripture, to love people is to keep people. To love people is to keep people. Ian Proven is a phenomenal Old Testament professor. And he says that to love people, to keep people, I'm paraphrasing here, is to look after them and look after their interests as best as I can and as often as the opportunity presents itself. And we're regularly bombarded with opportunities to meet people's needs. No exaggeration, Jeff Rao and I were getting out of our cars this morning in the service. Somebody parked in front of the gate, so we're already sort of... This is like the second time in two months that people just decided to park 
overnight right in front of the church gate. And I don't know what that means, but maybe they don't realize it's a church or whatever. But So we're coming around, and I'm all sort of disoriented just by that fact alone, and I'm having to turn that off. And this guy pulls up, and I thought he was going to hit Jeff's car. And he's like, I don't remember. I didn't even hear what he said totally, but he's like, I'm in need. Can you help me? And I'm sitting here going, well, I'm preaching on this. I probably... <laughs> You know, and you're like, is this guy for real? Is he, is he? I mean, I once, I once gave a guy 200 bucks in college and found out I just got conned by a con artist because he was a Christian brother in need. And I'm like, and I did some stupid stuff. You're like, what were you thinking? But like that being taken advantage of is so raw. But, and we're, and we're also on top of that, we don't want to be taken advantage of, but we're also inundated day after day with people saying, I need your help. Can you give me? And it can feel overwhelming. There's no shortage of opportunities, let alone the real ones where we see, hey, this person has this need, and this person's going through bankruptcy, and this person doesn't know where this is going to come from, and the child support hasn't come in here. I mean, we really are inundated with a lot of needs that come in from the people around us. But to love people is to keep people as best as I can and as often as the opportunity presents itself. And when the person sitting next to you who you don't want to murder. When that person sitting next to you can't afford groceries, that becomes your burden. That becomes our burden. That those of us who are sitting here today, when we don't have enough to make ends meet, that's our burden as a people. And that's not easy to deal with. That's not easy to process. But that's what we're called to be, as people keepers. Ian also says, and this is really interesting, that those, those commandments are the things we are called not to do. So he says, God gives us the commandments, do not murder, no cheating, no lying, no stealing, don't commit adultery, don't do all these other things, right? That there are all these things that at their heart, we're told not to do them, right? Because at the heart they have covetousness. I want for myself. I'm going to take for myself because I want. So I'm going to take from this person. I'm going to take life. I'm going to take possessions. I'm going to take honesty and truth. I'm going to take them for myself because I want and I don't care about the other person. So there's this negative, don't do this. And there's also a positive. We order our lives, the the, the, the law calls us to order our lives in such a way as to be a blessing that I practice certain things, that Yahweh calls his people to practice certain things in order that they can be in a posture, not just to avoid the negative, but to be the positive. It's interesting when you look back on the law and you think, well, God's just given people this list of, okay, don't do this, don't do this. No, 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 no. Think about it in terms of how do we keep each other because we're all brothers and sisters. We're all created in God's image and we're meant to look at each other. And remember what Rick Watts taught us last year, last two years, that as we look at each other, we are the image of God to the other. That we are little representations, little icons of God, that as other people are looking at us, they are to see God and receive from us the way that they would receive from Yahweh. That's who we're called to be. And so there's a negative, a don't, and there's a positive, a like, oh, do. Like, I need to order my life in such a way that I can be this blessing to others. And then he has this quote, and I want to put this up there. This is he says, beyond all that, the positive and the negative, following the law involves virtues like generosity and the deliberate cultivation of empathy without which it is impossible even to conceive of how to love my neighbor as myself. 
without generosity, and without deliberate cultivation of empathy, we can't even begin to think about how we're supposed to follow this law, this command to love each other as ourselves. If we want to follow Jesus, we have to see generosity, a life of generosity as essential. Not just a, ah, it'd be really some bonus points if I could get that in there. Now, this is who we're called to be as the followers of Yahweh. You know, Lou made this quote, I'm going to paraphrase it, but he said this, this line a little while ago in the series that, that someone said to him that Christians are people who've been given this, this awesome life or something like that, and who, but who hoard it and who look down on others who don't have it. And I'm thinking, we believe that everything we own, everything we have is a gift from God, right? That he gives us. I mean, I asked my kids last night, why do we pray before dinner? And my one daughter's like, I don't want to. I'm like, okay, well, no, besides that, why do we pray? Why do we give thanks at dinner time? Because we're giving thanks to God. He provided all this for us. If we believe that, and yet we're marked with ungenerosity, aren't we basically doing the same? That, oh, we've received so much from God, but we're going to hold on to it. And you who are in need, I'm sorry. Like, you can't have any. Or we give just a little, here you go. There's just a little bit, but it doesn't really cost me anything. And I wonder if we have an inability to have empathy. Like, when we hear those stories, do we, or we see those opportunities, do we see ourselves as people who have been in that place before? couple questions for you, or maybe just a couple application points. Where are ways that you can financially give and intentionally give to people's spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being? So here's a practice. What are ways in which you are intentionally giving of your finances, of your possessions, and giving it away? to care for people's spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being, to seeing them be whole people and seeing them be the people that God desires for them. Where are you doing that in an intentional, meaningful, regular way? How can you do that in a way that lines up with God's character and with God's commands? So don't define it for yourself. Well, this is what I think it looks like. But really to, 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 to examine Scripture, to invite the Holy Spirit to speak into your life and to say, God, what does it look like in your kingdom? What does it look like in the way you desire to do it? What does it look like for me to submit myself to you being the creator of all and me being created But what does it look like for me to practice that kind of generosity and to give to you in a way where I, I, I am your vessel to be used. That when people see me and they receive from me, they go, man, I feel like I saw God. I feel like I saw Jesus in that person. Because we do have to submit to God's leading and not define it for ourselves. And generosity has to begin with some form of letting go of control, especially when it comes to our money. We have to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and we have to practice obedience. Otherwise, we're just back to where the, the, the rich young ruler was, right? Jesus says, here, do this. And he goes, I can't do it. 
Jesus defines it for him. And it was radical, and it was intense. And I'm not saying I would probably do much better. But it's a story for us. It's a story and a warning for us in some ways to say, wait, that's not who I want to be. I want to be the person who can trust Jesus. I want to be the person who can let go of my things and say, you gave them to me. I trust that whatever I need, you'll fill up. And people have asked, because I, you know, we've talked more about money just as a church in the last year, like, I've gotten comments and different things, and my posture has been about our finances. My posture has been, hey, if we're generous people, if we're practicing generosity, I trust that God will provide all that he desires to provide for this church to accomplish the things that he has called us to do. But it starts with us being willing to let go and to say, we are generous people who want to be a blessing to others. And I want to maybe affirm something different. Some of you in this room are really good at making money. You're really gifted at, at some job. Maybe you're just really great at what you do, and it comes, it comes with a really generous um, uh, salary, or you're just good at what you do. Some of the most inspiring Christians I have met are people who say, I'm good at making money. And I love to share it with people. I want to affirm you business guys out here, you business ladies out here, who are really good at what you do. That making money can be a great gift to the kingdom of God. And it doesn't have to be, hey, make it all and give it to the church. But I do believe that God wants to create generous people who reflect his coming kingdom and who he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That when people experience you, they experience somebody who makes them a whole person. Who doesn't say, be warm and well fed. Now go on your way and don't meet any of my needs. There are a lot of people who have the opportunity to practice significant generosity that will bring life change. And that's a great vision for life. I desire that in my own life. I think that All of us desire to be a person known by our friends and our neighbors as a generous person. And so hopefully this morning you have a vision for this idea of looking at people and seeing them differently as opportunities to practice blessing, opportunities to live in a people-keeping, and to remember that at some moment in your life someone has looked at you and given you a gift because they saw in you their friend, their neighbor, who needed keeping but they just wanted to bless you. I think there's enough empathy in our lives, enough ability for empathy to be able to to look at other people and see ourselves in their shoes. So again, this morning, my my desire is that we could lean in to trusting that God wants to, to cultivate in us things that we want in our own lives. We want to be generous people. We want to practice things that matter. It isn't a matter of just trying harder, doing more, giving more, but to say, God, I want to open myself up to your leading, to your Spirit's work in my life, to allow me to open up my hands to receive more from you and also let go from you. Let go to others for you. So let me pray for us this morning that we can do that. Father, I... I hear the story of that was read this morning, and um, it, it does, it scares me 
because I know that I, I love my things, and I, I lust after my things so often, and I spend a lot of time asking, how could I have more and be more and get more and experience more? Um, but I also realize that those things make me less human. And I desire greatly, Lord, to be around friends and family and neighbors and even strangers who look at each other and say, this is what it looks like to love and to keep and to bless. So I pray that this, this morning that we would be encouraged by you to be more faithful and to trust you in keeping those around us, that we would celebrate that we live in a community where we can be both the givers and the recipients of great generosity. God, I pray that you would call to mind those moments in which you have provided through others in our own lives. I pray that you'd recall those moments of joy in which we have given a gift and felt the the most satisfaction we have felt in a long time, that that has been the best money that we have ever used is to give it to that person and see that need met. And I pray that we'd have conversations and I pray that we would encourage one another and spur one another on to greater generosity because we're open and we can talk about it and we can celebrate it and we can be people who say, wait, how are we using this to glorify God? Not comparing what we own or what we have or where we go or where we eat. Father, may you open up in us a trust that, that you will never call us to give more than you will provide. And may we be able to be faithful to trust you to step into those moments where you are calling us to go. Amen.